Welcome to Nero Knowledge. Special Constable John Ng is a divisional crime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service and has been a law enforcement analyst for over 10 years. He's a certified law enforcement analyst with the International Association of Crime Analysts and has been an active member, having volunteered with their former Methods Subcommittee, co-authoring a handful of technical papers on analytical methods including hotspot analysis, prioritizing offenders, and social network analysis, and currently volunteers with their Publications Committee. He's presented at crime analysis conferences and recently at the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference on the role of crime analysts in evidence-based policing. He also served as the analyst series coordinator for the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing's community engagement team and continues to volunteer as a community liaison for CANSEB, promoting the value of law enforcement analysts in EBP. More recently, he's been selected as an NIJ IACP Lead Scholar, which is a scholarship that helps support mid-level officers in advancing data and science in policing. He's one of the first crime analysts to receive the scholarship. He successfully completed a Master of Science degree in criminal justice from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and an Honors Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from the University of Toronto. His research interests include police culture, police leadership, organizational change, police tactics and strategies, hotspots policing, offender management and risk assessments, and crime analysis. Um, so welcome to Nero Knowledge Podcast of Nero Crime Analysis. We are on with John Ng from Sis. I always want to say Saskatchewan because that's what we learned in the States, but it's Saskatoon. Yep. Um, Ontario, uh, not Ontario. Jeez, I'm crow. See what I'm doing already? I'm, I'm brutalizing this interview to begin with. So, John, why don't you get us started? Um, how are you? And why don't you give us a, a little bit of how you got to be an analyst turned, uh, I guess, researcher at the same time, right? Kind of a, a dual position for yourself? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I actually came to Saskatoon uh, working for uh, the local university. And I was doing some evaluation type of work, and because of my background in research um, and academia, it rolled into um, a research coordinator position with the Saskatoon Police Service. Um, and then when they started creating their new um, patrol analyst position, and now their divisional crime analyst position, um, I applied for the position, and I was. Um, it, it was actually kind of interesting because. Originally, many years ago, I wanted to go and do my PhD and never even thought about crime analysis. And then when I started hearing a little bit more about, you know, analyzing crime, using um, the skills that I had in uh, my academics, I melded the two of them together and I was like, hey, let's check out this crime analysis thing. And grad gradually over time I started reading like a lot of crime analysis oriented type of stuff and so when this position came along I applied for it and I ended up getting it and that was 10 years ago now wow. over 10 years so yeah so what hooked you into what brought you to crime analysis then from the research base that you started from um it was just a, a matter of wanting to actually 
do a little bit more than just looking at numbers and charts and that kind of stuff. I really wanted to um, apply a bit more of my education to my profession because my background's in criminal justice and psychology. So for me to put together charts and graphs, it just wasn't enough for me to do just standardized kind of reports. I wanted to explain um, not just the, and this is important for a crime analyst, is not just to explain the, the what, but the so what of, you know, crime and disorder. Like, why are we analyzing all this stuff? Are we just simply describing it? Or do we actually want to do something about it? So that's how I kind of led into to getting into this crime analysis field. I think that's a great point is that a lot of people get lost in explaining what as opposed to the so what. And that's really what gets us to where we should be driving towards today. Uh, everybody can pull a number, but not everybody can kind of get the nitty gritty of the so what and start affecting the change in the numbers at that point uh, exactly. to a positive degree. Um, so to keep going with that, so you work more with research and evidence-based policing. Um, some of your presentations, as you forwarded to me, have uh, <clears throat> that topic in mind. Um, one of the things I think that you, you had in there were uh, the demands on police services. Can you uh, start us off and, and speak to what you are working on in some form or what you've found in terms of the increased demand for police services and what you're where you're going with that kind of topic yeah for sure so um just to go back a little bit so i started um getting involved with evidence-based policing because i was at a conference a police chief's conference with uh, dr laura huey a few years back and i said to her this was at a conference where we were discussing um, policing and research and i just found that there were very few handful of of crime analysts there and it really made me scratch my head about why this was happening and so fast forward probably i'm going to say three or four years later um i started noticing that dr huey started this uh cancer organization and um i started following them on twitter and i really got involved with having some of those conversations i had a little bit of time at the time um looking at some of the ongoing kind of research related to policing and um, I didn't realize how, how rich it was. So I started to realize the overlap between um, what crime analysts were doing and what police researchers were doing. And again, I didn't realize how, how much deep research that was actually going on and what was available to, to crime analysts. Um, so very recently I went to the American Society of um, evidence-based policing's conference in Cincinnati in May um, of 2019 and myself uh, Jeremy Rausch and Greg Stewart um, two very well-known people in the crime analysis world uh, all three of us decided to join together and present at the ASCBP conference um, on the role of crime analysts in evidence-based policing um, because I just found this tremendous kind of overlap between what we were all kind of doing and one of the the main starting points of our presentation was um, about the demands on police these days. So what Greg kind of referred to was in terms of, you know, the new kind of upcoming challenges with respect to policing. And if we think about it, there's, you know, issues regarding um, increased transparency and accountability, which is how we 
end up having discussions of you know social media um, and mm-hmm. how police are um, under greater scrutiny, uh, uh, body worn cameras, that kind of thing. Um, there's obviously increases in salary and training, the expenses that come with equipment and fuel, uh, changing nature of, of crime, including like cybercrime and different types of fraud, um, like identity fraud, um, and also the expanding role of policing with, you know, dealing with individuals with uh, mental illness. So um, in many cities and many jurisdictions, there's a lot of um, things that were traditionally dealt with by other agencies that because of funding issues in their situation, also in our situation, unfortunately, some of those issues end up becoming policing issues. Um, so that's how I think some of the greater demand kind of comes along. And I think it also plays to the, the, the point that um, in many cases now we're starting to need to rely on partnerships with other agencies agencies including like health and education and social services so yeah those are just kind of some of the demands that kind of push us towards that idea and that necessity for evidence-based practice yeah that's that's quite the spectrum of uh topics you bring up um yeah <clears throat> from you know the the modern of the cybersecurity all the way to kind of the i won't say traditional but i mean a, a police cruiser and fuel cost um, and just having to drive around and, and some of the people obviously having increased in the demand for police services in terms of calls for service increases. And like you said, I think a lot of them end up being covered in terms of, you know, mental illness that we're starting to see more of, uh, I know in the States and, and I'm sure internationally, the increase in the opioid crisis and, right, and exactly. all kinds of, uh, demands. And now that need, as you, I think you're, kind of uh, chipping away at is is the need to connect to all these other services uh, social services in general how it affects now families um along with the community uh, as a whole um so what uh all of these uh, again quite a spread of topics um in, in terms of the police services and how they almost end up being the uh front man for social services i mean working at a police agency phone calls come in for everything from the you know domestic violence situation to um, a request for a police to show up for overdose that the uh, ambulance is headed to to um, you know landlord tenant issues and people who can't uh, befriend and be civil with their neighbors what kind of what is going on for an analyst to root through? How are we as analysts going to start helping um, utilizing evidence-based police and how do they get involved um, to do the research to better help the researchers give that evidence-based policing a a better edge? Is there data and help that they can provide to get that going? Yeah, I think, um, like, I'm just going to draw on a little bit of my experience because Mm -hmm. before I got into policing, I was working with a really well-known social epidemiologist here at the university. And the thing I admired a lot about what he had done, and it's really shaped a lot of my thinking and the work that I do, um, is that a lot of his research was not, um, it wasn't behind a desk. It was out there in the community, which is why, 
like a lot of his research was action oriented type of research and it was out there in the community understanding what was going on and then applying like a research lens to it to understand systematically what was going on in the community to figure out what the factors were was contributing to some of those issues and then as a consequence like looking at the root causes and then trying to apply an evidence-based kind of approach a research-oriented kind of lens to really complex problems and then trying to attack those problems and those in that kind of perspective and it's the same kind of way that I view my role as a crime analyst and I think rolling into the research perspective is trying to understand the um, the not just understanding I guess broad crime categories that we would traditionally consider let's say like robberies as a whole um, you know, and if we think about Comstat, there's certain kind of crime categories that we're specifically looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about evidence-based practice, we're also thinking about things like problem-oriented policing, where we're, we're where we're looking about specific types of problems and not crime categories. Um, and that's where I think crime analysts um, are not only they can be challenged not only by the work that they currently do, but also they can be challenged to push themselves to that further boundary where they're looking not just at crime categories, but really trying to deeply problem solve mm-hmm. um, some of the root causes. Um, so in those, in that sense, we can help researchers um, frame potential research type of questions. And I think that's where the experience comes in. So especially with senior analysts, they've got not only the technical background, but they've also got the operational experience. Not as much as like an officer, like a senior officer would have, but we're also not like junior analysts where, you know, we don't know what the culture is. We don't know what police tactics and strategies are, what things um, are possible, what things are important. Um, So once we're able to understand what's really important in the police service and apply our technical background and our operational background that's where we can you know partner up with um, police researchers and say hey listen these are things that I think are important for us to research and then work collaboratively together so do you see it um, more from from the sound of it it's analysts who've been there a little while have gotten there hands dirty the experience of not only pulling stats, but being capable of seeing maybe some patterns or emerging uh, problem from the ability to use um, some statistical analysis and patterns and trends, uh, things of the like, but also trying to take that and then register it as a problem that needs to be addressed where everything else is um, possibly uh, not necessarily status quo and not something that is Completely low priority, but obviously that's something to get ahead of the curve, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And that's where we start getting into much more of that meaningful type of research. And I think that's what's exciting for a lot of practitioners, crime analysts, and a lot of researchers is that we all want to try to make an impact on the profession of policing and make our communities better. Um, And I think most analysts would agree with me that you know, developing charts and graphs and, you know, looking at numbers all day is not the most exciting thing in the world, but we really, we get into crime analysis and we can get into policing. We're not exactly, you know, paid the most amount of money in the world, but it, the reason why we get into crime analysis in the first place is because we want to make that difference. Yeah. 
and yeah. we want to be able to apply that skill set that we have. Right. Yeah, I see us more almost as a, a civilian detective in a sense, but you know, we can pull numbers and see, but when we see that problem, how do we affect the positive change out of it? How do we um, you know, curb it or get people the the help that they need from uh, social services or the community um, as as a whole to better the community environment as well as the the individual that may be uh, causing the problem or have a problem that needs to be addressed. Right, and back to the other point that you had about you know having that kind of experience. I feel as though if, especially for a junior analyst, if you have a mentor, a senior analyst, that's going to be really, really, really important. And the other piece of it as well is you may have a junior analyst, but you've got junior analysts that have experiences in different types of degrees and they've got different kinds of work experience. And they may come into a policing world and say, hey, this seems really bizarre. Is this something that you guys have looked at before? And they might have like a completely different lens that we might not even consider because we've just been so entrenched into like a police culture for so long that we might think of it as something that's kind of normal but Mm. you know you've got a junior analyst that's coming along with a fresh perspective that's also equally as welcome so do you have a a suggestion on um, how analysts can keep from getting kind of that that tunnel vision maybe getting focused too much on either one project and not seeing outside of the box or falling within that police culture that says, nope, you know, I need the statistics from you only. Here's our comp stat thing quarterly, however it works, and, and continue to do what it is that they kind of got there, um, got into that position to begin with, the reason why they got there to begin with? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've been in you know the policing um, crime analysis world for over 10 years now, and it could have been very easily possible for me to have been, um, you know, the kind of what we would consider like a, uh, a paycheck crime analyst. Mm-hmm. And this is the, this is the one thing that, um, one of, um, a really good colleague of ours, um, had mentioned to me is that not every crime analyst is going to be interested in doing policing research and want to, you know, be at the forefront of policing innovation. Um, some people are very interested and willing and very strong in, you know, doing some of the, um, you know, the number crunching, they might be strong in those kind of fields, but then there's other people who want to do something a little bit different. And what I would say is that if you have been thinking for a very long time about, you know, certain things in your police agency that you think need to be changed, or if you see generally as a policing discipline that you think that, you know, could potentially be changed. The thing, the main thing that I would highly recommend that you do is get involved with these evidence-based practice, evidence-based policing um, societies and these organizations like the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, the American or the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. There's one in um, uh, New Zealand as well, and there's one in the UK. There's all these societies that are progressively growing across the entire world and it's because people are wanting to make that difference and if you want to get yourself involved before you because you've got all of this operational kind of experience you know you've been in crime analysis for whatever number of years to make sure that you keep on the forefront and I would say this for not just crime analysts but I would say any police leader that's out there 
anyone who really wants to make a difference in policing, go out there and read. Go out there, get yourself exposed to academic literature. Pick up like a book that's related to policing, related to crime analysis. It doesn't even, in, in some cases, have to deal with policing. Like some of the books that I've got on my shelf have to deal with business, mm-hmm. right? So there's a bunch of all of these different types of books, but the main thing that I would say is for you to be prepared to seize that opportunity for that moment, you've mentally got to be prepared for it. So if you don't keep on top of the literature, if you don't continue to sharpen your mind and prepare your mind for possible possible opportunities, those things are just going to bypass you and you won't even have an idea as to how to grasp onto those kind of situations. So that's the main thing I would say is just read, get yourself exposed, be curious and just want to learn and want to problem solve all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And like you said about business, I I see us similar to the same thing. There's um, a lot of business intelligence tools that we've uh, taken into our own practices. I mean, people use Excel frequently. It's like, well, that's, that's a great analytical tool and that is used across businesses, um, uh, big and small to do some of that work as well as we're uh, customer based, right? Our community Mm -hmm. is our customer. We provide services. We should be trying to figure out what it is that they need from us and what it is that um, we can provide to them as well as the reverse. I mean, what is it that we need from them to get support in order to continue our process of trying to make things, uh, you know, safe and better for the community as a whole. The only way to do that is to tap into that business aspect and, and continue to analyze um, what's coming in in order to to put out something uh, a better service or you know be there in that hot spot area um, at the times that we're needed to affect a, a better change with the limited resources that we currently have. Right. Um, so that's that's definitely good. So what are some of um, the the components? Uh, for analysts to, to support evidence-based practice? What, what can we do um, as analysts to, to get that going to obviously, again, progress and, and make uh, a better police agency in within our agencies and, and provide better to the community? Sure. Um, I, think the, I think looking at a lot of um, what I've been doing for a number of years now is, and I think this comes down to not just you know, crime analysis um, as a whole, but also relating to EBP, is that you truly do need a champion for analytical work um, in your police agency for things to start really happening. Because um, crime analysts can, crime analysts are serving in a very much supportive capacity, mm-hmm. um, and we can provide as much support as we can. But there's what I'm trying to say is that crime analysts traditionally have been very, very supportive in supporting the culture that happens in a certain police agency. So um, there was an article that was uh, produced a few years back um, that was asking whether crime analysis was evidence-based or not or whether it was effective or not. And it boiled down to what the real question came down to was, was it effective relative to the policing model that you have in your agency? So if your policing agency is not following evidence-based practices, your practice as a crime analyst is not going to be supporting that. If your police Mm. agency is very much 
driven by like a standard traditional investigative reactionary um, type of style of policing, that's what your analytical work is going to be driven towards. But if your agency is going to be progressive, it's if it's going to be driven through research and evidence-based practice and intelligence-led policing, um, those are the kind of things that your work is going to be helping to support. So the ways that crime analysts can help support some of these evidence-based practices, and for those who are interested in um, EVP, you're going to start learning what really works in policing. And some of the stuff that I've been able to gather and understand about what works in policing is hotspot policing, focused deterrence, and problem-oriented policing are at least three main ways that crime analysts can help support evidence-based practice. So hotspot policing, of course, there's been several studies, um, including like a systematic study that shows you the, the breadth of all of the studies that are um, currently existing and that explain to you what does all the evidence kind of point towards. Um, it demonstrates that hotspot policing is one of the most effective ways of reducing crime and disorder. So obviously, hotspot policing is something that um, crime analysts can help with. So, you know, we've been doing um, uh, hotspot mapping all the time. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, we need to start looking at, um, you know, some of the literature that David Weisberg has been putting out um, with respect to hotspots. And what does it mean by when we're talking about hotspots? And why does that matter? How can we go about problem solving some of those hotspots? So that's where some of the hotspot policing comes in. I would also recommend for crime analysts, and this is the interesting thing that I found as a crime analyst, is not, we're not just there to provide um, what the problem is so we can identify what the problem hotspot is. Mm -hmm. But really what I would challenge a lot of analysts are is go out there and read what works in policing. Read what needs to be done in those hotspot locations, what works. Right. So if you start looking at some of uh, Cody Tellup's work or even Chris Coper's, some of his work looking at the Coper curve, he recommends spending like 15 minutes at some of these hotspots every couple of hours randomly. So that's how to deal with some of those hotspots. So it's moving beyond just identifying what those hotspots are. But what can we say to decision makers as to what best practice is about? Right. So that's about hotspot policing, focus deterrence. Um, I would highly recommend for people to understand and learn a little bit more about that process. And again, there's a, a systematic um, study about that. But the idea behind that I'm gathering a lot from um, focused deterrence is looking at chronic offenders. And if you look at um, some of uh, Dr. Larry Sherman's type work, he coined the term uh, the power few, looking at both top hotspots and chronic top people that we need to focus in on. And that leads into harm-based policing, harm-focused kind of policing. And that's not just looking at the number counting, but really what is the harm that the top locations and the top people are contributing to society. So we're not just looking at the number of robberies, the number of burglaries, the number of thefts. There's certain types of crime that are more important than the other. There's more top locations that are more important that we need to focus our attention to. There's more. There's a certain number of people that we need to focus in on. So that's focus deterrence. Mm -hmm. The last piece is looking at problem-oriented policing. And when we're looking at hotspot policing, the question comes down to what do we do in some of those hotspots? Do we just deploy resources to those hotspots, which is what 
most crime analysts would probably say, hey, you know what, we see a hotspot, let's throw more police resources at it. But do we want to have police cars go there just, you know, every 15 minutes? Or do we want to address some of the root causes and describe what some of those problems are and be able to problem solve some of the root causes at these some of these big chronic issues? And that's really what problem-oriented policing is about. And applying a problem-oriented policing lens to some of these hotspots is really what's going to drive the crime at some of your hotspots. So just from you know reading some of that literature, that's how you can get exposed to um, some of the research, what best practices are as a crime analyst to help support evidence-based practice in your organization. That being said, like I said at the very beginning, is that you really need to have... Um, you need to have uh, a champion for analytical work and for evidence-based practice um, because um, you might not necessarily be able to change some of that culture yourself, but um, having a champion there is going to allow for your reputation as you know, an evidence-based practitioner to push some of that you know, knowledge out there. But the thing that I would also say to a lot of crime analysts is something, a piece of advice that one of my close superintendents and a mentor of mine said to me, which was, John, as a crime analyst, the thing that I that would be important for you is to change the language, change the way people are talking about crime and disorder and policing. And that's what I've been doing, is that I talk about hotspots, I talk about the COPRA curve, I talk about evidence-based policing, I talk about focus deterrence, I talk about really what works in policing, and it starts to you know, change people's mindsets. And if you're able to demonstrate and suggest something to a police leader that this actually works, and if they're willing to run with it, and if down the road you're able to conduct an evaluation and show that crime and disorder has dropped because of an evidence-based practice, that is gold. That is absolutely gold to be able to show something like that. It proves that the language that you're putting forward actually makes a difference. It's not just theoretical. It's not just academic talk. It actually works. So that that's, you know, I listen and it's great that um, to have a champion, just like you said, I know there's way too many analysts still that unfortunately are in their position that want to do some of this work that don't have a champion that supports or backs them, um, or at least somebody that's not high enough on the chain to do it. Changing the language uh, would probably benefit them to, to some degree. What, if anything, do you have as a possible um, suggestion or a story that might be um, helpful where an analyst was somebody who wants to go, somebody who wants to affect the change, somebody wants to do the job of an analyst with some of this EBP, and um, how do they get somebody more or less to listen and try to win over um, that culture or at least somebody to support them to continue it to, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, infect the culture in a positive manner with uh, being an analyst and evidence-based policing and getting that process started if, if you have any suggestions on that end. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for me that I've kind of recognized is um, just as a growing professional and as a person – I've realized that you're not going to win everyone over. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's kind of like a, a big fight that if you are a junior analyst and you're frustrated in your job, whether you're a police officer or you're a crime analyst, there is going to be a, a point in your career where you're just going to, 
you know, look at your profession and just get really frustrated by it and you want to make a change and you're just hitting um, roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, mm-hmm. um, the reality is, is that there are, there are people that are within your circle of influence that you can go and speak to and those are the people that are going to be supporting you and gradually over time that circle is going to progressively grow and grow and grow and there's going to be a a moment and a time where you're going to come up with an opportunity and say to a police leader let's try this what do you guys think about this and try an experiment of some sort or a project of some sort and be able to prove at some point that you know you're going to have an awesome result down the road so the example that i would have is something very very recent that i um, was exposed to at the International Association of Chiefs of Police as part of the Leeds program is that I went to ICP in Chicago and I went to a presentation um, by Dr. Renee Mitchell and the chief and I think it was deputy chief from Grand Prairie, Texas and awesomely enough, they're crime analyst. And what they had done was they created um, a beatless patrol study and um, it, it it was basically a hotspot study, and the way it started out actually was that, um, from what I understand, is that um, their police chief heard uh, Dr. Renee Mitchell um, put on a presentation, or they invited her um, to put on a presentation about evidence-based policing to their executive, and they just they all j- jumped on it, and they recognized the value of it. So they thought, you know what, let's try a beatless patrol study where they said that instead of looking at um, looking at police beats, uh, which is, you know, traditionally police districts, which is something that police agencies love to hold on to, mm. um, they opted to look at hotspots and deploy their resources um, based off of where the hotspots were, not based off of their police districts, because not all police districts will have hotspots. So instead of deploying a certain number of resources to specific hot to specific districts that might not have the most amount of crime, let's look at where all the hotspots are and deploy our resources there. So they conducted a randomized control study where they split the hotspots in half and applied more officers to or a certain kind of technique to one set of hotspots and the other set to a control group where you know, they weren't applying a certain kind of technique. And they noticed that when they applied a certain kind of intervention to one half of the hotspots, that it reduced crime and disorder. But the reason why I point all of that out is because their crime analyst was the person who was there to generate the hotspots. They were there to help out with the evaluation of the study. They were also there to help identify um, the time and amount of time that officers were spending at some of those hotspots. So they were they were integral to um, the evidence based practice of their organization. So um, in that point, basically what it involved was um, someone who was reputable in the evidence based policing world come in and have a conversation with their police leadership, and it took their police leadership, a progressive um, police leadership, to recognize the value of it. So. If there's some crime analysts, though, that don't have that opportunity, though, in addition to trying to influence the people that are around them, the thing that I would advise is to join some of these evidence-based societies because 
I have received the most amount of support with respect to my ideas um, from some of these societies. And some people in my organization are on that same page and are part of some of these societies because we're called the nerd herd for a reason. It's because <laughs> we try to think about moving policing as a discipline forward. Yeah. Um, and the amount of support that you'll end up getting is tremendous. And if you follow these people on Twitter, um, the conversations are just, they're amazing. The, the resources, the support, the people that you'll end up meeting is phenomenal. So that's me. One main thing I would advise a lot of analysts to do. Yeah, definitely. Networking is, is huge. Um, and I think, uh, that's a good point that I don't think has been brought up yet where somebody from the outside, like you said, somebody reputable, um, that may already buy into uh, evidence-based policing that is, you know, a chief, a lieutenant somewhere with another agency that's kind of driving, whether it's a problem oriented policing division or that's uh, crime analysis is what they oversee. They could actually uh, possibly at least put a foot in the door um, for an analyst within uh, an agency that might not see it as um, a, a great um, tool to move forward on a, a great way to start policing um, with that evidence-based policy uh, in play. Um, so with with uh, some of that, what are you currently working on? Now, I know uh, Laura said something along the lines of you having a data project that you're looking into currently. I know analysts love data. Um, so obviously, it's not something that uh, it, we may cringe over it as well but due to the dirtiness of it or the lack thereof. Um, what is it that you're working on currently? Yeah, for sure. So um, what ended up happening was that um, because of my connection with Dr. Laura Huey, um, I was throwing around a bunch of ideas just for myself as a whole. And I started to recognize this is the way I guess I generally think about, you know, my research projects, um, and innovative kind of, uh, ideas and projects and research questions that I want to come up with is that I look at my personal experience and, um, again, it's, I'm trying to generate research that's action oriented. So I try, try to draw from my own experience. And, you know, one of the first presentations that I did at the international association of crime analysts conference, um, was, uh, you know, a, a presentation about, you know, a junior analyst wanting to make change in their organization and what some of the lessons that were learned. And I had opened up the can of worms about talking about data quality and, <laughs> That was a really bad idea because it opened up the floor to a lot of really um, angry people um, yeah. that wanted to talk about data quality. And it's not the most interesting topic in the world, but I came to a point where I was saying to myself, you know what, we have standards for UCR codes. And, you know, there's this other side of it that talks about data quality with respect to research. So um, looking at um data quality from a research perspective and even from a crime analysis perspective, you know, we're looking at things like, is the data accurate? Is it complete? Is it reliable? Um, is it timely? Is it relevant? Those kind of things are qualities of like good pieces of data. So my question is, is that when we came down to looking at UCR codes, there is a standard, at least within Canada and I know in the U.S., that you guys have certain standards for categorizing certain types of crime. Hmm. 
But my question is, is that we do like as a crime analyst, we look at data that's beyond just counting UCR codes, right? We're looking at things like MO. We're looking at, you know, um, let's say the number of stabbings. We're looking at, you know, if we're looking at problem or into policing, we're looking at issues related to low budget motels, really complex kind of problems, very similar to the way researchers would look at crime problems, right? And so we deal with the same kind of data issues that a lot of police researchers would. So my question that I raised out there for this research project um, with Dr. Chris O'Connor, who's from um, the Ontario Tech University in Ontario, we wanted to ask the question of, are there data quality standards with respect to other pieces of data in other agencies and what is best practice, right? Because we're always talking about best practice with respect to reducing crime and disorder, but there's also evidence-based policing is not just about reducing crime and disorder. It's talking about other aspects, all facets of policing. How can we apply a research rigorous systematic kind of approach to understanding what works in policing? So I wanted to understand, are there practices and policies that, you know, there's certain agencies that have fantastic data quality and do fantastic crime analysis work and then there's other ones where they're really challenging and we're unable to you know access the data that we want and have high quality data so Mm -hmm. i wanted to understand are there practices and policies in place that allow for awesome crime analysis and great high quality data that would not just be important for you know crime analysts and for police researchers for interest purposes but to really drive decision-making from, you know, an intelligence, data-driven, evidence-based kind of practice, we need to have high-quality data. So do we have practices and policies in place to make sure that that's right? Yeah, right? I think instead that's of, great. Yeah, so instead of crime analysts trying to consistently clean up data all the time, really the agency should be putting value on high-quality data, allowing their analysts to be able to gather that information and be serious to implement, you know, strict policies and procedures to make sure that that data quality is up to standard. Because that, to me, is a cornerstone of policing. It's not just policy and practice with respect to what we do in policing and what police officers should be doing, but our data quality is going to be a cornerstone of how we make decisions in policing. Yeah. I think it even uh, abroad, just as... um... An example, the agency I work with, we had a local organization that does a lot of uh, post-care and post-support services for uh, recovering addicts ask us about our drug data and the questions that they had, we didn't collect anything on. And that was, uh, you know, kind of a limit to our CAD and RMS in a sense, but at the same time, you looking at it and, and the problems, it was something they were trying to see. Could they work with us? How many times has this happened? So that way they could prepare services locally um, for the community because they want to know what kind of demand that they might have um, in the area. Not only that, we're not just collecting data as historians to see what we can do within the law enforcement agency. It can go, um, if it was obviously better quality and better captured, it would be something that could um, sway legislation, right? I mean, instead of having an opinion, why can it not have, uh, with the evidence-based practice behind it, inform uh, legislatures to say, hey, here's what it is, here's what the data is saying, here's what the research is saying, this is what is and isn't going on, 
we need now to you know make some kind of uh, law or practice or re-implement new social uh, old social services or fund this and uh, I mean there's a lot more involved since uh, again law enforcement I think take the brunt of it and people want to know why we need to collect all this data but I think it has even more potential to go outside and beyond just the agency itself and its community as well as uh, the state province country uh, nation as a whole uh, can be affected as long as it was um, as it looks like you're looking into, of better quality and, and substance. Right. And part of the discussion as well as um, part of the survey, and it's it's done, like it, it's an exploratory study that we're kind of taking a peek at, is looking at, um, you know, not just the policy and procedures that are currently in place, but, you know, what are crime analysts view, like what's their perspective on the quality of their data, right? Mm. So if, do they feel like, the work that they have that they're doing is valued because I would see a relationship between um, poor data quality and undervaluing uh, crime analysts and their work mm. right so yeah. do police leaders in that organization value police data value high quality data and as a consequence do they value the work that their crime analysts are doing and as a consequence are, are their decisions based off of based off of data or is it just you know the way it's always been right so right. um it's it, it's all these different kind of pieces that i i've kind of been looking at but you know just generally saying getting into policing research um is not i would say it's not substantially difficult and it's not going to be in my perspective it's not um that much more beyond what you're doing um in some senses because like I said, I drew parallels when I first started out looking at evidence-based policing between crime analysis work and policing research. Um, because some of the work that I truly feel is meaningful with respect to crime analysis work is really what is um, at certain aspects of policing research. Um, the stuff that we do day in and day out when we're talking about not just and this is where I would challenge a lot of crime analysts is looking not just at the tactical work, but the strategic research type of work that we can yeah. potentially do. If we're constantly seeing, you know, convenience stores being robbed um, all the time, well, can you tell me a little bit more about these convenience store robberies? How can we go about problem solving some of them? What are some of the root causes? That's a research project as a whole. All it takes is one additional step forward and if if crime analysts go out there, get connected with police researchers, get connected with academics, uh, reach out to them, email them, um, have those conversations, you can create a partnership where you can just get yourself involved with a research project. And this is how I got involved with this conversation with Chris O'Connor from Ontario. I just said to Dr. Laura Huey, I was saying, this is what I'm finding as a problem within the policing world and as a crime analyst what do you think? And she said, you should contact Chris O'Connor. So that's where we started out with this research project. So Nice. So now it's going to just bloom from there. <laughs> yeah. So before we leave, John, any call to action for the listeners that you have? Some, some message you want to relay, get them jazzed up? Yes, I would absolutely say um, get on board with evidence-based policing. I'm not just saying that... Um, because some people might think it's a fad. Um, it 
to me is the future of policing. It's exactly where it needs to be. Um, you will be at the forefront of policing. You'll be with innovative people um, who are trying to change uh, policing for the better. So that's the main thing I would advise uh, for people in policing as a whole as crime analysts. And I would say the crime analysts continue to learn and get out there, have conversations with police researchers and academics. There is an entire world that's out there that was completely open to me the second that I stepped into this EBP world. Nice. And so for those people that are going to go out and, and blaze this path, how can they get in touch with you and uh, locate your material and research to begin with? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the main way is uh, definitely through email. I'm very happy to provide my email to you. Mm -hmm. um, and also the other thing is uh, follow me on, on Twitter. Um, so I am a Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing's uh, community liaison individual. And so a lot of the content that I push out there is all about driving the importance of crime analysts and uh, law enforcement analysts in the evidence-based policing uh, movement. So uh, follow me, just uh, type in my name, John Ng, type in uh, Twitter and Cancep, and you'll be able to find me there. Um, and I'll also provide you uh, a link to my Twitter account. Um, again, I also have uh, Twitter, uh, sorry, an analyst series day where I talk about, you know, crime analysis oriented type of stuff. And also, also like some really cool um, evidence-based policing stuff, but within the framework of crime analysis work. So Awesome. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes, all the contact info and your your ads on Twitter and stuff and get to everybody uh, directed that way. John, thank you for your time. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Neuro Knowledge Podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with all your friends, and we will catch you next time.